John chapter 6, verses 22 through 40. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them the bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall, not, shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Whoa, you guys sound great. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. Uh, we're working our way through the gospel according to John, and we've titled this series, Believe. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter six. We're looking at verses 22 through 40. Those were the verses that were just read. Also wanna welcome those of you that are on YouTube Live right now. Thank you guys for joining us. And so we're talking about bread of life this weekend. And let me start, you can see there on your sermon notes, let me start by just telling you, I love homemade bread and rolls fresh out of the oven, butter and honey, yeah, smothered with buddy, drizzle, butter, smothered with buddy, but, uh, brother, <laughs> butter, okay, I can see where this message is going today, <laughs> it's going to be out of control. So smothered with butter drizzled with honey. Woo! Is that good or what? Should we call, should we call uh, DoorDash to get us a, a delivery here this morning? Is there any restaurants that will serve that up for us? How many are in? Okay, okay, we'll just wait long enough to get those and then we'll be good. So I, I, I share that because we're talking about bread of life and, and what I just shared is certainly a gift from God and a pointer to the ultimate bread of life that is by far Listen to me, that is better by far, 
that is better by far more sustaining and satisfying. That's, that's Christ. He's the bread of life. He's amazingly sustaining and satisfying. Nothing like him. Nothing like Jesus. And so people eat bread to satisfy physical hunger and to sustain physical life. That's why Jesus uses himself as, referring to himself as the bread of life, because it was, it was meant to connect with the, with the crowd. He's later going to use the general term food, as you will see as we continue to, as we work through this text. So he's talking about food. We need food to, to really satisfy our hunger and to sustain us in life. Therefore, we need Jesus to satisfy our spiritual hunger and sustain us spiritually. And so this is why Jesus called himself the bread of life. It's because of the satisfaction and the sustenance that, that bread brings to our lives, and that is what he is for us. So three questions we're looking at this morning. What is it? What is this bread of life? I think the, uh, this text answers it for us. Jesus answers it for us. What is it? What is the bread of life? How do we get it? How do we get it? And then third question, where does it come from? bread of life. Here's your first question. What is it? Now, let me kind of bring you up to speed. If you haven't been with us, as we worked our way through uh, the sixth chapter of John, verses 1 through 15, Jesus feeds the 5,000. So, I mean, this is consistent with this this idea of him being the bread of life. So, he feeds the 5,000. Verses 16 through 20, the disciples get into a boat and go across the lake. We talked about that last weekend. Now in verses 22 through 24, which is our text, the crowd that remains realized that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but somehow got to the other side of the lake. That's, that's what's going on here. And so we pick it up, the story up in verses 25 and 26. Look in your Bibles there if you've got them in front of you, or you can look up on the big screen behind me. And so verses 25 and 26, when they found him, so some of them got into boats and traveled to the other side of the lake. Others somehow maybe worked their way around. I don't think it was the full 5,000, 10,000, 15,000 people. I think there was a large group of people that continued to pursue him. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? How did you get over here? Notice how Jesus responds. He he cuts to the chase here. He doesn't answer their question. He he forces them to think a little deeper into their life. He's going to reveal their motives for following after him. And he says, and Jesus answered them, truly, truly. So he's, he's the source of truth. This is, the word means amen, amen. So be it, so be it. This is, this is a fact. This is a fact that doesn't care about your feelings, okay? This is factual. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So he's revealing their motives. And, and the signs were meant to, sh- to reveal who Jesus is and what he came to do. But they're kind of like pushing that to the side. No, no, we just want more food. So here's your first couple fill in the blanks on your notes. So what is it? Bread of life. What is it? It is coming to Christ not as a means to an end, but the end. Not as a means to an end. They were coming to him as a means to an end, not the end. That's, that's what he's pointing out to them. Now, how would I know that I'm, I'm doing that? Now, let me just say something here up front. It's, it's not a problem initially 
to come to Jesus as a means to an end. I think we all do. And that's just a fact. We're coming from a place of brokenness in our life, maybe broken marriage, broken home, broken life, personally, financial devastation, any number of things that can be a problem in our life. And so we're seeking help. And so we come to him as a means to an end. But if we don't make the transfer from him being a means to an end to the end, we've missed the whole point of the Christian life. We've missed the best part of the Christian life. And that's him, knowing him, enjoying him, experiencing him. Now, how do I know that I've I'm coming to him as a means to an end rather than the end. Have you ever heard people make statements like this? I have. A lot of good this Christian life did for me. Went to church, read my Bible, did all that. Look at the mess I'm in. How about this one? Yeah, I tried the Christian life, but it didn't work for me. Or I'll serve God if he will make my life go better much better than it is. See, that's, that's statements of people who are using God, not wanting to be with God. And, and we all tend to do that, there's no doubt. So, so people that make these kind of statements, you are using God and marrying him for his money, okay? Using that as kind of an analogy there, had someone in our staff this week say, yeah, that's, that's called spiritual gold digging. And, uh, and it, that's true. Are you a spiritual gold digger? And, and that's what he's exposing in these people. Now, let me, let me give you a gut punch here, okay? I guess you don't have a choice, do you? <laughs> here it comes. If the only time your prayer life heats up is when you're going through really hard times, then more than likely you are using God and not really getting to know God and wanting God above anything else. Now, now, listen, I'm cool with you, you know, running to God in difficulty, but if you have a tendency during times of success, things are going really well in your life, and you put God on the shelf, and then all hell breaks loose in your life, and oh my goodness, you've never attended church more consistently. You're picking up your Bible and reading it fervently. You're on your knees and praying sincerely, unlike ever before. That's telling you a little bit. There's nothing wrong with coming to him during those times, but when times get better, don't put him back up on the shelf. Transfer it from being, from using him to knowing him and experiencing him, because otherwise you're missing the best part of the Christian life. And that's to know him. Yeah, praise God. That's right. Right on. And so uh, I, I'm convinced that the deepest and most enduring happiness, the deepest and most enduring happiness in life is not from God, but in God. It, it is. It is. I'm telling you. Someone that's walked this journey many, many years And so it is, so this idea of bread of life, what is it? It is coming to Christ not as a means to an end, but the end. Now look at verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes. So he, I mean, he went right down into their heart and said, I, I'm exposing your motives, 
And by the way, here's what you need to put all your effort towards. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. That's a good memory verse right there. Our tendency... I mean, look around on the landscape of America today. Most people are working their tails off for food that perishes. And we as Christians can fall prey to that because we're bombarded with all this whole commercialism and consumerism and all of this that tries to tell us that happiness is one purchase away or, or whatever it might be that they're trying to tell us. I mean, a billion dollar, billions and billions of dollars industry trying to do that to us. And so we spend our efforts working for food that perishes, but he says, no, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. In other words, the Father's seal of approval is on Jesus. Now what's interesting here, the word that he uses here, he says, endures to eternal life. The word life, there are two Greek words. New Testament was written in Koine Greek, everyday Greek language. So there's two Greek words for the word life. And the one is bios, sound familiar? Biology, bios, biology, he's talking of the physical life. The other word is zoe, Z-O-E, Zoe. And that speaks of quality of life, quality of life or spiritual life. So here's what Jesus is wanting us to really understand is that your, your spiritual life, your internal life, your eternal life is extremely more important than your physical life, your external life, your temporal life. That's the point that he's making. Now, before we move on to the next point, next fill in the blank, here's what we need to understand. It is your spiritual life, and the reason why he's saying this and making such an emphasis on the spiritual life as opposed to the physical life, the zoe versus the bios is because your spiritual life, your internal life, if your spiritual life, your internal life is healthy, then all the suffering in your physical life, your external life, can't destroy you. If your spiritual life or your internal life is unhealthy, then all the success in your physical life, your external life, cannot redeem you. It cannot save you. And so here's what it is. Next, next fill in the blank on your notes. It is the pursuit, so we're asking the question, what is it, bread of life, what is it? It is the pursuit of a quality of life that is eternal and freely given from Christ. I gave you a ton of verses there. Don't have time to go through them. You can study these on your own uh, as you're working through the growing notes. But uh, let me give you a quick illustration here. Buying groceries with our grandkids few years ago, we let each one of them pick out whatever kind of cereal they wanted, okay? And so, of course, of course, we let them pick out cereal that their parents would never let them eat. Shh, don't tell their parents, okay? And, you know, I mean, pouring milk over a bowl of sugar, basically, is what it is. How many like cereal like that anyway? You like it? Okay. Okay. You know that's not good for you, okay? But we feed it to our grandkids all the time, okay? 
But anyway, I just, we don't do it all the time because they're out of control when we do that. And so we've learned to throttle that back a bit. But, um, but yeah, I mean, and so we let them pick this out, pick out the, whatever cereal they wanted, and two of the grandkids said this to us. Wow! We are the luckiest kids in the world! In other words, they were saying, this is really living, Grandpa! Now, now we laugh at that just as God laughs at our definition of quality of life or really living. And so let me ask you some questions here. What is really living for you? What is really living? You do have a definition. You know, you might not be aware of it. It might be subconscious. Some of you, you know it consciously. You know what it is. Everyone has a definition for that. What is your meaning, hope, and happiness in life? What are you living for? Everybody wants to be happy in life, so there's things in your life that you are pursuing because you believe that will make you happy. What is that Zoe you're pursuing? We tend to confuse that with the bios, thinking we're, somehow we're going to find it in the physical life. Jesus said, no, you're not going to find it there. You're going to find it in me, in your spiritual life. So what is really living for you? What is, what is quality of life for you? What gives your life meaning, hope, and happiness? Here's how, how I've been able to uncover it in my life. I think you can uncover it in your life too. So let me ask you another question. What dominates your thoughts? What do you daydream about? When your mind is free to think about whatever it can think about, where does it go? It might be scary when you start realizing what is most important to you because that's where your mind will go to. 423 of Proverbs, above all else, guards your heart for it is the wellspring of life. It's just saying, man, what is, it, what is it that you daydream about? What is it that dominates your thoughts? Here's another question. What stirs your deepest emotions? What do you get excited about? What do you get really mad about? What do you get sad about? What makes you really glad, happy, energized? I mean, just follow those emotions back to their root, and it's going to identify what's most important to you in life. It's going to identify what you think is the good life, what will ultimately make you happy. So what dominates your thoughts, what stirs your deepest emotions, what moves you to action, what gets you out of bed in the morning? Besides, if you're old like me, you have to go to the bathroom, okay? So that's what gets me out of the bed in the morning. And then there's something else that actually gets me out of the bed in the morning. But, but yeah, so, so what is it that what drives you? There, there's something, and you need to uncover that. You need to be more self-aware of what's most important. Now, now, here's what's crazy about this is we could say all day long, Jesus, yes, he's a bread of life. That's where I find satisfaction. And yet at the same time, I can say that, and yet in my heart, I'm actually finding greater satisfaction in other things and people, things, and circumstances. We are what we love. We worship what we love. We may not really love what we say we love. So you have to have some time of really thinking about what's going on here. 
What's happening in my life? Now, look at Ecclesiastes chapter two, verses eight through 11. It's up on the screen here behind me. And let's, let's walk through this. So here's, here's Solomon, the wisest, wealthiest, most powerful man probably who ever lived. And um, listen to what he says. I collected great sums of silver and gold, the treasure of many kings and provinces. I hired wonderful singers. So he just didn't buy, just didn't buy their music. He bought the band. I mean, he had them performing for him, both men and women, and had many beautiful concubines. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. You think he's got a little bit of an obsession here? This guy needs some counseling. (laughs) I had everything a man could desire, exclamation mark. So I became greater than all who had lived in Jerusalem before me, and my wisdom never failed me. Anything I wanted, I would take. How many have ever daydreamed that winning a lottery and, I mean, you could buy whatever you wanted? Show of hands, show of hands, okay. Some of you are honest, okay. Okay, maybe the rest of you have never thought about that, never thought about having all the money in the world or having all the money that you ever, you know, where you could just buy whatever you wanted to buy. No limits, that's what he's saying. I denied myself no pleasure. I became greater than all who had lived in Jerusalem before me. So I had everything a man could desire, so I became greater than all who had lived in Jerusalem before me. My wisdom never failed. Anything I wanted, I would take. I denied myself no pleasure. I even found great pleasure in hard work, a reward for all my labors, but as I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was all so meaningless, like chasing the wind, a wild goose chase without the goose. (laughs) There was nothing really worthwhile anymore. So. Next couple, fill in the blanks on your notes. I think this is what he was experiencing, and this is what we will all experience. When we make the physical things of this world, the the external, the temporal, our pursuit of happiness. Now, there's nothing wrong with having good things. The problem is when we take good things and turn them into God things. And, and, And that's where it gets us into trouble. And so when we do that, if you look to anything more than Christ for your quality of life, or your definition for really living, this is what will happen. It will control you when you seek it. It will control you when you seek it. It begins to control your life because you begin to seek that. That's your source of happiness. That's your source of fulfillment. That's your meaning. That's your hope in life. And it begins to control your life. And by the way, this is what brings anxiety in our life because when that thing that is controlling your life, that you're seeking for your meaning, hope, and happiness is being threatened, that's why you have anxiety. It's being threatened. Something important to you is being threatened. Therefore, you have anxiety. It controls you when you seek it. It will disappoint you when you get it. It'll never be enough because your heart was made for something much bigger like God, not just temporal things, but, but someone who is eternal. The law of diminishing return. You guys know what I'm talking about when I say that, law of diminishing return? You buy something and you go, woo, you're excited for about two weeks and then you go, ah, it's not quite what I thought. I need to add, a, add this whatever to it or I need, to, oh, I need to have a new one, I need to trade in for the, the next model or whatever. 
you know, like maybe like iPhones or whatever phone you have, you know, after a year, it's like, ah, this is obsolete. I got to buy another one. This isn't good enough. It only took me most of the year to try to figure out that phone to start with. Now that I've got it figured out, now I don't, you know, it's obsolete. I can't even use it. I got to find another phone. I mean, that's the law of, law of diminishing return. It will disappoint you when you get it. And this is what creates the bitterness. I mean, think about this. I did this for many years in my marriage relationship. I, I began to look to my wife to give to me what I should have been getting from Christ. It created bitterness within me. It's like, come on, can't you jump through more hoops for me? And what I was doing was trying to get her to do and to give to me what I should have been getting from Christ and find my completeness in him. I was trying to find my completeness in her. It's called idolatry. And it creates all sorts of bitterness. So, so when this, this God thing, this good thing that has become an ultimate thing, this God thing is being blocked, that's where you get bitterness. How dare them get in the way of that? So it'll control you when you seek it. It'll disappoint you when you get it. It will devastate you when you lose it. This is what creates the depression in our lives. It's a good thing that's become an ultimate thing that we have lost, and now our life's over because we put all of our hope, meaning, happiness, purpose in something that was temporal and it was inevitable that we were going to lose it. How insane is that? That's crazy, but we do that. We build our little sand castles on this big, beautiful beach of life. It only takes a few waves. When the tide's in, boom, levels it out. We go, ha ha. That's a sand castle. Didn't you see that coming? I think that's what he's saying in Ecclesiastes. This is chasing the wind. This will not give you the deep meaning and hope and happiness and the, and the Zoe kind of life that we all so long for, that we all desire. So, so bread of life, what is it? It, it, is, it is coming to Christ not as a means to an end, but the end. It is a pursuit of a quality of life that is eternal and freely given from Christ. Here's the next question. How do we get it? How do we get it? Look at verses 28 and 29 of our text. Then they said to him, so, so remember, he cut to the chase, revealed their motives, and then he said, hey, don't work for food that perishes, work for food that endures to eternal life. And of course, they respond, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Yeah, we want this, well, we want this life. So, so what do we need to do to be right with God? What do we need to do so that we can go to heaven? What do we need to do to have this quality of life? I'm sure there's some kind of works that we need to do. What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. He's just saying, believe in me. So here's a question for you, yes or no? You can answer out loud. Are we saved by works? No. No. Actually, it's yes. Sorry. But not your works. Whose works? Yeah, Jesus' works. Yeah, I mean, God just doesn't overlook your sin and say, oh, yeah, no big deal. Come on in. You're part of my family. No, no, there had to be payment for our sin. And that payment was paid by Jesus on the cross. So are we saved by works? Yes. Yes. His works, not my works. (laughs) 
I haven't, I mean, when I begin to discover that, I, I've never gotten over that. It's just like, whoa, whoa, you got to be kidding me. So I'm right with God. I can live a quality of life that's beyond anything on this planet. I can know that I'm going to heaven. All these amazing benefits are not based on what I do or don't do, but it's based on what he has done for me. Yes, that's the gospel. That is the gospel. Now notice what he says. When they ask him for works, he does not say, obey the Ten Commandments. By the way, this is what separates Christianity from every major cult and religion of our world today. Most people would ask, well, what makes Christianity so different from every other cult and religion? Right here. Every other major religion will give you a list. You gotta do this, you gotta do this, Jehovah Witnesses do this, Mormons do this. You know, all of the major religions of our world give you a list. Oh, here's the works of God. And in Christianity it says, oh, no, there's only one thing you need to do is put your faith in Jesus. It's in his works. He lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we should have died. On our behalf, in our place. And so, notice he doesn't say obey the Ten Commandments or the Great Commandment, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbors yourself, or the Great Commission, or you gotta be holy, or you gotta get your act together, or you gotta, gotta practice spiritual disciplines, or you need to produce more of the fruit of the Holy. He doesn't say any of that. That's all the byproduct of us believing in Christ. All of that is byproduct. We don't obey him to get his blessing. We have his blessing in Christ, therefore we obey him. Don't reverse that, it's called religion. And so here it is, next on your notes. It is not something that I achieve, but something I receive. It's not something that I achieve, it's something I receive. Ask the average person in America, are you going to heaven when you die? What will they say? Most people will say, absolutely. And then you say, well, what is the basis of you going to heaven? And they will say, because I'm basically a good person. Woohoo! So when you stand before Jesus, which everyone will, when you stand before Jesus, what are you going to do? You're going to pull out your old resume and say, hey, Jesus, here it is. And he's going to look it over and go, whoa, that is amazing. You're a wonderful person. Yeah, there's some bad stuff here, but your good outweighs the, all the bad. Come on in. I'm so glad you're part of the team. What do you think? No, that's ridiculous. Take a look at this verse Romans 3.20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin, the law just reveals how messed up we are and how desperate we are to know Jesus. So what, we, what do we need to do? What's the work of God? Put your faith in Jesus. Now, this whole book has been about faith in Jesus. This is why John wrote the book. 2031, remember? He says, these things were written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. It's all about belief. And so you probably should have this memorized by now, but if you don't, okay, pop quiz time. I mean, it's really, it's on your notes, and so it's just to kind of continue to remind you of this. So when you think of faith, putting your faith in Jesus, think of head, heart, and hands. It's on your notes there. So what do we need to do? What is the work of God right here? It is truth about the person and work of Jesus Christ entering your head. So there's content to our faith. So when people say, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus, the first 
question you need to ask them is, so what is it that you believe about Jesus? What is it? Well, he, he was a good man. Well, he's a little bit more than that, okay? Um, well, he, he died on the cross. Okay, so what did that mean? Okay, explain to me, what does that mean? Most, you know, just some general belief in God or general belief in Jesus isn't gonna get you into heaven. You've gotta know some specifics about what he did and who he is. And so that's the first part of our faith, truth about the person and work of Christ entering our head content, but igniting the heart. So this is what it should do. When you hear the gospel message, it's gonna do two things in your heart. You're gonna realize, oh my goodness, it's gonna convict you, but it's also gonna comfort you. How does it convict you? It says this, basically, and you're gonna realize this. It's gonna dawn on you, I am more sinful than I ever dared to think. I was so sinful, Jesus had to die for me. That's the conviction because you're beginning to understand. He died in your place for your sins. The gospel is the good news that God has reconciled us to himself by sending his son to die in our place for our sins. And so it brings conviction. Oh, but it also brings comfort. Here's the comforting side that it should bring. I am more loved than I ever dared to dream. He loved me so much, he wanted to die for me. So conviction, comfort good healthy balance of understanding the gospel. So the truth about who Christ is and what he's done for you that enters your head, ignites your heart, and makes its way out into your hands, your everyday life. You make a commitment, you love him more than anyone. So see, the Christian life is more than an agreement with facts in the head, it's an appetite for God in the heart that exceeds all other appetites. Do you hear me? You desire him more than anything anything in life, and, and you pursue him, and you seek him with all of your heart. And so if I were to ask you this question, are you a Christian, just, just think about how might you would respond. How would you respond? You come up at the end of the service, you want prayer, and I say, are you a Christian? How would you respond to that? We're in the hallway, we cross paths, I say, hey, how you doing? Hey, let me ask you this question, are you a Christian? How would you respond to that? And I can tell by your response whether or not you're living in trying to achieve or you have already received. The basis of your life is, is about doing versus done. Christian life is not a preoccupation with doing, it's a preoccupation with what has been done for us through Jesus Christ. How would you respond? Now there's different responses to this. Let's just say that uh, the first two are gonna be people that are preoccupied with, with doing and they tend to be leaning towards the religious side. And by the way, we all tend to do this, but I already say you're a Christian and you responded with a, with a measure of defensiveness and you said, of course I am. Don't you see me every weekend? Yeah, I do, okay. I put money in the box, I attend a small group, I read my Bible every day, I pray, yep, 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 I, I, I hear you, but you can do all that and not be a Christian. So you give me your list, and, and you would actually come off with a little bit of an attitude of superiority, that's a superiority complex, and you're telling me that you're probably being motivated by pride in doing all of that because you're trying to prove that to me, and you're preoccupied with doing. Here would be another, uh, response of someone that would tend, tending to lean more towards religion as opposed to a relationship with Christ, that uh, you, would, you would respond in doubt. You'd say something like this. I say, are you a Christian? 
I'm trying. I'm really trying hard. Okay, okay, hold on for a second. I mean, being a Christian is kind of like being pregnant. Either you are or you aren't. Okay? It's like being married. Are you married? I'm trying. Okay, maybe you're trying to get married, but no, are you married like right now? Yes or no? Either you are or you aren't. And that's how it is with Christianity. There's no trying in this. You're either his child or you're not. And obviously, you're basing it on your doing. And, and what that does is it creates an inferiority complex. And you're going to be motivated out of fear. You're preoccupied with achieving as opposed to receiving. You need to rest in, in what he's done for you. Here's, here would be the right response. So the first one is defensive. Of course I am. Next one is doubt. I'm trying. Oh, I can't do it. The third one is delight. Are you a Christian? Can you believe it? I really am. How great is the love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God, and that is what I am. I'm a child of God. I know I'm a mess, but he loves me. I'm resting in the reality of what he's done for me. He's still working on me, but I'm a child. I'm his little crazy child sometimes. But man, does he love me, and that's what's transforming me, and oh my goodness, I celebrate that every day. You see, that's a person that has that humble confidence. I'm more sinful than I ever dared to think, but I'm more loved than I ever dared to dream. I was so sinful, he had to die for me. That humbles me, that rids me of pride, but he loved me so much, he wanted to die for me. That eliminates fear. So you have that humble confidence, that balance. You're not operating out of a superiority or inferiority complex. It's just humble confidence. Oh, my goodness. That's a great way to live, and you're motivated out of love. You want to live for him. You just love him. You've experienced him in your life. So let me ask you this. Are you preoccupied with do, achieve, or done, receive? Are you working for or from the assurance of the Father's love? And I'm telling you, listen to me. There's nothing better than the assurance of the Father's love. What I quoted there was 1 John 3, 1. How great is the love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. That is what we are. That's living in the, in, in the reality of the assurance of the Father's love. You have his assurance whether you... You're living in it or not. If you're a believer in Christ, you have the assurance of his love. He will never leave you or forsake you. He will always take care of you. He will never abandon you. Nothing can separate you from his love. Rest in it. Enjoy it. Bask in the reality of his great love for you. If he didn't spare his own son to rescue you, he's not going to spare anything else in taking care of you. That's resting in the assurance of his love. There's nothing better and the only way you can rest in the assurance of his love is to focus on done, not what you have to do. Your doing is in response to what has been done for you. That's the Christian life. We tend to get that flipped around and we become very religious and filled with pride or fear, one or the other, rather than just this love, responding in love. So how do I get it? As we just said, it's not something I achieve, but something I receive. It is truth about the person and work of Christ 
Entering the head, igniting the heart out, working through the hands. Here's the last one. Where does it come from? Where does it come from? Now, so in verse 29, he said, Jesus said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Now, verses 30 through 34, we're not going to go through those, but let me just kind of summarize them there. The crowd responds, give us more food and we will believe. That's that's that if only statement. It's kind of like, okay, we'll follow you, Jesus, if you'll make my life better. I'll follow you and obey you if my marriage goes better, or if I you know, make more money, or I get that raise I've always wanted. So he's a means to an end. So he's still a means to an end to them. And so give us more food and we will believe. So their argument, and they throw this argument of Moses. Moses gave our people food in the wilderness. Well, and then he says, well, it wasn't Moses that gave them the food. It was God that gave them the food. And basically just Jesus is saying, no, you kind of missed the whole point. The, the manna from heaven is a picture of me. I'm the bread of life, and that's the point that he's making. Verse 35, let's read this verse together and aloud. It's up on the screen, you guys see it? Here we go, all together now, one, two, three. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Oh my goodness, do you hear that? All the meaning, hope, and happiness you would ever want in life right here in Jesus Christ. This is crazy. This is the gospel. Oh, my goodness. The good life, right there. Living life to its fullest in Jesus. I love it. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never never thirst. So here's your next fill in the blank. It is available to whoever. Twice he says that. Whoever. Whoever comes to me. Whoever believes in me. Two times. Here's the next one. It is an ongoing intimate relationship with Christ. And I get that from, he says, who comes to me and believes in me. He's emphasizing that. Comes to me, believes in me, one and the same. Comes to me, believes in me. Now this isn't something like, you know, I've had people say, yeah, well, I committed my life to Jesus about 20 years ago and got baptized. Okay, that's cool. Woo, that's great. How about now? Do you come to him and believe in him every day? Are you interacting with him? Do you have a relationship with him? You, you did know that that's what the Christian life is. When you put your faith in him, you're entering into a relationship with, with the God of the galaxies, <laughs> which is really spectacular. And so that's what you entered into. So would you, you got baptized and you made a decision and that was it? I think you kind of missed the whole point, okay? And, and this is what he says, comes to me. It's an ongoing, intimate relationship with him. Present, active, indicative. It's just like, I come to him every day. I believe in him every day. Yes. I need him. I'm desperate for him. I want him. I want to enjoy him. That's what he's talking about here. And here's how I define intimacy. So what is intimacy anyway? Intimacy, and this is on your notes, is a mutual giving and receiving of love and truth. So this is what needs to be happening between you and God. So do you have an intimate relationship with Christ? In fact, this is how you break the hold of working for food that perishes. You want to break the hold that it has on our lives? It's intimacy with with Christ. I am the bread of life. Who comes to me, believes in me. By knowing him intimately, experiencing him. Now, this will be quick. I've got a list, and I wanted to start with really understanding what intimacy is, and I'm going to share with you, first of all, uh, let's start with, let's use a healthy marriage relationship as an example. There's just some questions. You can think about your own life, your own marriage relationship, and, and some of these would certainly apply to friendships also, okay? So here's a marriage relationship, healthy marriage relationship, if, they, if you do have intimacy with one another. And so 
Is there a deep interchange of thoughts, feelings, and needs? Do you, do you talk on that deeper level? Do you feel deeply understood by one another? Is there a regular exchange of affection and commitment? Do you spend time just to look into each other's eyes? Are you there for each other when there is a problem? Do you know how to support and bear each other's burdens? Do you know how to give each other priority? Are you willing to rearrange your lives for the other person? Are you willing to help the other to change and to change yourself for the other person? Now we could add even more questions, but that's, that's intimate marriage relationship. Now let's, let's bring that over now to our relationship with God. This is what your relationship with God, intimacy. If you have intimacy with God, this is what you should be looking for here. And that is, what has God been speaking to you lately? I mean, I'm telling you, he, he talks to me every morning, every day. I don't know that I could even survive without interaction with him. Can you tell me something new he's been uh, teaching you? What, what, what area of your life? I can tell you. I'm not going to tell you, but I could tell you. Okay? It's just between him and I, okay? Are you finding Scripture to be alive and active? Oh, yes. I'm going to be teaching the class on how to study the Bible. This is what we want right here. When you study the Bible, this is the kind of interaction you want. Are you feeling both conviction and comfort from God's Word? Do you sense his love being poured out into your heart? When was the last time you were overwhelmed with the assurance of the Father's love for you? (laughs) That's good. That's what I want. That's what I want for you guys. Do you get together with him just because you enjoyed being with him? Do you share your deepest thoughts and emotions with him? Whole book of Psalms. That's what that is all about. Is most of your prayer life an expression of adoration and deep affection? In hard times, does he give you peace? Can you feel him supporting and strengthening you? Are you willing to rearrange your life to show him he is the priority? We're going to talk more about that next week because we'll finish up chapter 6, but this bread of life and understanding that, having intimacy with him, we need to learn more about what that means. And so how do I know I'm experiencing an intimate relationship with Christ? In verses 36 through 40, he gives us, and this is the last of our text, he really is showing us the security that we have in Jesus Christ. And verse 40 is the summary. Look at verse 40. It's up on the screen behind me here. Uh, So for this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. He's talking about security. We have security in our belief in Him. He's going to see us all the way to the end. He's going to take care of us. He's going to love us. So how do I know that I have intimacy with Him? Here it is. I'm giving you the definition of contentment right here. It is an inner, inner, gracious, quiet spirit that joyfully rests in the presence and providence of Christ. That's how you know you've got intimacy with Him. An inner, gracious, quiet spirit. Quiet spirit, yeah. There's no bitterness over the past. There's no complaining about the present. There's no worry about the future. That's a quiet spirit that joyfully rests in the presence 
and providence. You guys know what providence of God is? That he's always working for your good and his glory. Romans 8.28, Genesis 50.20. So, so here's, I, I'll give you just a little secret into my life here. I would have never survived 2020 if I hadn't done this regularly. My wife does it too. Her and I do it together and then we, uh, we do it separately. Every morning when I get up, I spend time with the Lord. And I seek to have my heart satisfied in Him. That's, that's my goal. Lord, I, I just need, I'm so desperate for you, I want my heart to be satisfied in you. And, and, and here's what, what difference it has made in my life. Is that the more I am satisfied in Him, the less trials, suffering can overwhelm me and the less temptations and sin can overtake me. When you have this level of contentment, oh my goodness, nothing can take you down. You can face anything. So we're gonna learn a little bit more about that next week, but we're gonna pray now and prepare our hearts for communion and get opportunity to just to, to bask in the reality of the Father's love here this morning. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. So Father God, we confess that our sinful tendency is to work for perishable food, more than food that endures to eternal life. And, and when we do this, these temporal pursuits control us and disappoint us and eventually devastate us, filling us with anxiety and bitterness and depression. So help us to turn to Jesus this morning, and not just this morning, but every day. Turn to Jesus, the bread of life, and regularly come to him and believe in him, cultivating an intimacy with him, filling us, filling us with an inner gracious, quiet spirit that joyfully rest in his presence and providence. We pray in Jesus' beautiful name. And everyone said, amen. They're gonna be passing out the communion elements. They'll take their double cups. They'll take both cups, hang on to them. I'll walk us through the process. And, um, and so this is what I want you to be thinking about. I want you to think about uh, just what is God talking to you this morning about? Just interact with him. Remember, mutual giving and receiving of truth and love. Share your heart. Hear what he has to say. Tell him how much you love him. Let him tell you how much he loves you. And just, just rest on that this morning. So the most important decision you can ever make for time and eternity would be to give your life to him. Commit your life to him. Acknowledge your sin that separates you from him. Believe that he died on the cross for all your sins. Confess him as your Lord and Savior. I would encourage you to do that this morning. And then, and then begin to live that out every day. Come to him. Believe in him. And when you, when you do that, I'm telling you, you'll be satisfied. Unlike anything else can satisfy you. What I love about communion, it's just a reminder uh, for me and for us for, for many things. But one of the things that always stands out, and you probably hear me quote this quite regularly, it's Romans 8, 31 and 32. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? What are, what are you facing? What are you struggling with? What are you overwhelmed with? Suffering, difficulty, are you overwhelmed? You feel like you're being overtaken by sin and temptation? If God is for you, who can be against you? If he didn't spare his own son in taking care of you, he's not going to spare anything else. 
he didn't spare his own son in redeeming you and rescuing you and saving you, he's not gonna spare anything else in taking care of you. You can rest in his loving, wise care of your life. Now, the problem is you need to slow down enough, ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life and just bask in his love and have that interchange of, of truth and love, mutual giving and receiving of truth and love between you and your Savior. That's what we're doing now as we take communion. So 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink together. So next weekend, words of eternal life, we'll finish up John chapter six. By the way, the text, there's some controversy there. And uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about that controversy, but more importantly, we want to be satisfied in him. We want to learn what that means and how we can do that better each and every day. My wife and I will be up front at the end of the service, and any available elders also will be up here. If you are new, we would love to meet you. If you need prayer for any particular reason, we would love to pray for you. If you have any questions about this message, I'd love to try to answer those questions for you. And so the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Love you guys. God bless you.